Hey there, welcome to The Kicker, CJR's weekly podcast about journalism. I'm Pete Vernon, a Delacorte Fellow, and your host as we chew over the feast of this week's media news. If you missed last week's episode, Dave Uberti is not with us this week, nor will he be in the future. His CJR watch has ended. We shall not see his like again. No, he is not gone forever. He's moved on to Splinter, the new Gizmodo Media Group's main site, where he'll be covering the media there. So we will not have his byline at CJR, but he will forever be a friend of the pod. This week, we have an interview with Jesse Thorne, host of The Turnaround, a podcast on the art of interviewing from Maximum Fun and CJR. Jesse's got some great conversations with legendary interviewers like Ira Glass, Terry Gross, and even Jerry Springer. But more on that later. First, the news. We'll discuss a White House press shop in crisis, net neutrality and the future of the internet, and climate change reporting, apparently signaling the end of humanity as we know it. Joining me this week to chew all of this over, senior editor at CJR, Christy Chisholm. Hey, Christy. Hello. Good to have you back. And CJR Delacorte fellow, Meg Dalton. How's it going, Meg? It's going great today. So some people it's not going great for are the White House press shop. Uh, This week we had the New York Times reporting on Donald Trump Jr.'s meeting with a Kremlin-connected Russian lawyer spread out over a couple days. The reports kind of dribbled out over the weekend and into the week. And then finally on Monday morning, we got Donald Trump Jr. himself tweeting out the actual email chain just as the Times was about to publish it. Um, The response from the White House to this was really a mess from the jump. Meg, what were they doing on the plane ride back from Europe and the G20 meeting? Yeah. So as you mentioned, on their way back from Europe, a group of Trump advisors um, crafted a statement for the president's son to give to the New York Times explaining why he had met with the lawyer connected to the Russian government last summer. Participants on the plane and back you know, on U.S. grounds were kind of going back and forth about how, how transparent to be in that statement. Spoiler alert, not that transparent. Not transparent at all. And this is a problem, right? This is an issue that the White House has had with credibility, with consistency in their messaging. It's not just related to this one story, Chrissy. It's something we've seen over and over again. Oh, absolutely. I mean, Donald Trump will tweet something and then Sean Spicer will say something else about it. And then Donald Trump will go back on what he said. And Sean, it's just the back and forth all the time. Right. And that's an issue. Credibility from your government is important. Transparency from your government's important. And speaking with one voice also, right. especially like if just within the administration itself. I mean, not ha- having this like a one single voice means not having a clear message, which means none of us actually know what's going on or trust that we are getting the truth about what's going on. And that's bad for America. But why is it bad for journalists in particular? We don't know what information to trust anymore. Like, what sources do we turn to? How do we go about verifying different claims when, you know, you hear one thing from the Russian government, another thing from the U.S. government, and you're kind of debating who to trust over those two? Right. And this is striking because all White Houses spin information into their favored narrative, right? But the Trump White House, at least to this point, has really taken that to another level, starting on the first day of the administration with the crowd sizes and all of that. And it just puts journalists in a tough position where they are being forced to choose, do we trust what the spokesman for Vladimir Putin is saying, or do we trust what the spokesman for our own president is saying? Well, it also makes it harder for us to combat the image of fake news, right? Because if like we're doing our best to try to get like what's actually happening into the paper, into online or whatever, if we're trying to get the real version of what's going on and we don't know who to trust or turn to for that, it just makes our job that much harder. It's right. kind of like a, a way to undermine the press. Yeah. Right? yeah. And that's been a theme of this administration. I'm sure it will continue to be one going forward. 
as we go forward, we turn to the internet, everybody's favorite place to exist and waste our time and occasionally do our work. On Wednesday, many companies across the internet, from Amazon to Google to Twitter, staged a day of action for net neutrality. Whenever net neutrality comes up, it seems to make people's eyes glaze over. Meg, what is it? So net neutrality prohibits internet service providers like Comcast and Verizon and AT&T from blocking websites, slowing them down, or striking deals with companies to provide them with premium services. It's basically about democratizing the web. Right, and treating the entire internet as we treat our telephone lines, right? Making sure that everybody has equal access, whether you're a small local newspaper or Amazon. Absolutely. Um, Christy, you've talked a lot about uh, how you prefer to take in your net neutrality news. (laughs) Well, I think someone who explains it better than anyone is uh, John Oliver, who explains just about everything better than anyone. It's about more than just speed. At its heart, it is the principle that internet service providers, or ISPs like these guys, should not be able to engage in any sort of fuckery that limits or manipulates the choices you make online. It also helps ensure a level playing field so that big companies cannot undermine small companies before they can take off. And without it, Ancestry.com could easily crush my new site, just tell me if I'm related to a (laughs) Nazi.com. It's like Ancestry.com, except you get to skip all the bullshit. So that clip we just heard came from a May episode of John Oliver's weekly HBO show. Why are we all talking about this on this week's episode of The Kicker? Yeah, so under President Obama, the FCC basically said, you know, all Internet content must be treated the same way it's delivered to customers. And so net neutrality became, like, possible. Um, But now the new chairman wants to roll back these rules, which means Internet service providers would regulate themselves. So that deals with the timing. Christy, why are we as journalists worried about this? Because it basically is all about equal access to information. It's about equal ability to disperse information if you're a news organization or a reporter. And it's about access to that information if you're a news consumer. Right now, the way that it exists is that anybody who has access to the Internet, which is a whole other issue when it comes to, like, equality and, you know, that's for another day. But basically, right now, if you can access the Internet, all information is equally available to you as it is to Donald Trump. Right. And anybody can go and comment at the FCC's page. There's a comment section open for you to voice your own opinions about this. They will be deciding whether or not to roll back those regulations in the coming months. It seems like the FCC chairman, Ajit Pai's mind is made up, but do what you can to try and keep the internet open. Moving on from the future of the internet to the future of our planet. I got to work on Monday morning, opened up TweetDeck as I am wont to do, and saw a bunch of people talking about this New York Magazine cover story by David Wallace Wells. So I clicked on one of those links, and the first sentence of this piece really struck me because it said, quote, it is, I promise, worse than you think. Now, I'm somebody who's already a little bit concerned and interested about climate change, but 30 minutes after starting this article as I finished it up, I don't know if terrified is the right word, but I certainly was feeling some sense of existential dread. And until Donald Trump Jr. started tweeting, this was the main conversation in media circles on the Internet Monday morning. Why did this piece break through? Writing about climate change, um, as we all know, is a difficult task because it's so mired in science. And that's hard for people to consume, right? The idea of how many degrees Celsius is this projected to grow? What's the range of possibilities? But again, this piece seemed to break through that mire some way. 
But so often climate change is written about in abstractions because, I mean, that's like, the, I mean, if you want to be as accurate as possible, abstractions, that's like usually the easiest way to go about it because it's like these are the statistical or like statistically this is how likely this one thing it's is. It's probabilities, right? It's all we, about probabilities. Yeah, we yeah. know from election projections, people don't like probabilities and they don't deal in uncertainties very well. Yeah. So, so what about this piece made it work? So I think the reason that this piece was so successful was that it didn't really deal in abstractions that much. It said this is the course that we're on. It spoke to the reader in the second person saying it's much worse than you think it is. This was about you and me and our future, not like what's going to happen in a city that you don't live in, you know, maybe in the next century, not something that you're going to actually have to deal with. It's saying in our lifetime, Things are going to get really uncomfortable. Things are going to get really brutal. Here's what it's going to look like if we do nothing and all the alarms are sounding. So the question that journalists and climate change reporters have to ask themselves is what can we take away from the success of this one piece and the engagement that it's received? Because we all know that climate change is something that's really hard to write about, that's really hard to capture people's attentions with. This piece has been very successful just in terms of being talked about and being part of the conversation. Right. And we should mention that there's been some pushback to the actual science that's reported in it. That's not what we're going to do today is debate the, the merits of the scientific projections. But Meg, to that question of how journalists can do a better job or why certain pieces break through, what do you think? I think it all comes back to what Christy was saying about abstraction. I think you have to ground the issue and the policy and the science in people and in storytelling, uh, which is what you know journalists journalists first and foremost are storytellers, right? And so I think what this what this piece did really well was that it did ground it in very tangible things. So like it kind of had like nine different ways, you know, the planet was changing, um, and it wasn't just this like far off idea of rising sea levels, which is what so often dominates the conversation of climate change. It's like, oh, yes, the sea, level, sea levels are rising. But like, if you live in the Midwest, you don't feel that. It's, if you live in Miami, maybe you do, sure. Um, right. But if you live in the Midwest, you might feel the increase in temperature, which right. leads to a decreased grain production, right? Yeah. And so you're grounding, you're grounding the issue of climate change in more localized ways. Yeah. And I think that is something, and that struck me as I was reading it, that Basically, it's not just the people in Miami or uh, the Maldives that are going to be impacted by climate change. It's all of us, right? We're sitting here in a studio right now in New York City, uh, a low-lying coastal city. But this is also something that's going to affect people in Oklahoma and Alaska and Venezuela. Like, this is a, a big issue that matters locally to everyone wherever they live. And that's something that I think David Wallace-Wells did a really nice job. The question that I think journalists or I think news outlets and again, environmental journalists, climate change reporters have to ask themselves is how to report about it responsibly. And so it's hard because we don't want to send people out there and say, make it all about like the tangibles and all the things that are definitely going to happen because nobody knows what's definitely going to happen. We know what's likely to happen. And that's why, again, we so often go back to abstractions. So it's about finding that marriage between the immediate and the personal and and just like the the I mean, truthful, for lack of a better word. Um, what's the closest that we can get at making actual predictions um, or seeing trends and probabilities? And how do we make that feel real to people in the media? How do we make let people understand the, the real life immediate effects like in their community? 
So again, I think this is going to come back to local news outlets finding ways to tell stories in their communities. If it's in Oklahoma, it's talking about the impact on rain and agriculture. You know, if you're in Miami, it's talking about rising sea levels, perhaps. No matter who you are, you should care about methane emissions from, you know, the Arctic. Yeah, yeah. It's, yeah. It's, it's reframing it as not a far away, vague, incremental threat. Right. And funny you should mention that because in the coming weeks at CJR, we're going to have a series of environmental dispatches from around the U.S. as part of our United States project. So keep an eye out for that. We're now joined by Jesse Thorne, host of The Turnaround, a podcast co-presented by his company, Maximum Fun, and CJR. One of the show's goals, as Errol Morris told Jesse in the teaser for the show, is to figure out what the fuck is an interview? I mean, I do not know. To help him answer that question, he's interviewing well-known figures like Ira Glass, Terry Gross, and even Jerry Springer. Jesse, thanks for joining us. Of course. Thank you for having me. So have you figured out the answer to that question yet? What the fuck is an interview? <laughs> I mean, it's an exercise in curiosity, right? I mean, that's what that's what I feel like I learned from all these people is it's about caring about someone else and their experience. Yeah. So that's that's one of my questions that I was going to ask. Is there any consistent answer to that question? Yeah. I mean, it obviously depends on it depends on what you're doing and how you're doing it. And that's why we had everyone from daytime television to documentarians to feature writers to radio and television, you know, feature interviewers. But I, I think the things that tie it together are a kind of open-minded open-heartedness a kind of a, a, a kind of feeling that you are always looking for the glint of gold in your pan that you're always ready to seize on something juicy that you didn't expect um whether it's coming out of their mouth their mouths or coming out of your own kind of internal monologue, your own curiosity, that you're always looking for that one, that, that special thing, you know, and you, you want it. And you can't, you can't really plan for it exactly, but you have to grab it when it's there. Right. What didn't you expect? You mentioned being open to uh, finding out, you know, things you weren't expecting. Was there anything you didn't expect that you learned from these interviews? Well, I didn't expect uh, Susan Orlean to give me a treatise on the value of not preparing. <laughs> I mean, Susan Orlean is like totally one of my personal and journalism heroes and just one of the coolest people I know. She's just such a great lady. And, uh, you know, she's a brilliant writer. I've read several of her books and loved them. And the thing that I didn't expect her to come and tell me was, in most situations, she prefers to be less prepared rather than more prepared because she wants to learn from the person that she's talking to. And that's why I go into interviews generally very unprepared, which might come as a shock, and any journalism teacher listening to this would probably suddenly turn it off and say, oh my God, I don't want my students to hear this. She used the example of writing a piece about this uh, gospel vocal group that she was going to go on tour with, 
And she said that a few sort of gospel music fans that she knew told her, oh, read this history of gospel, uh, read this book, and then you'll know what's going on. And she decided not to and was glad that she didn't because she didn't want to enter that situation telling them what she knew, but rather asking them what they knew. And, you know, I mean, it's important if you're going to do that to have the time to uh, poke around, which, you know, Susan Orlean as a reporter for The New Yorker or as a woman writing a book has. But the thing that Susan Orlean, the thing that's magical about Susan Orlean is she has that ear for a story, right? She can recognize when something cool and interesting is happening and she just goes for it. And that was like what she has in common with Ira Glass, for example. Like Ira Glass told me that that you should always just go for the exciting, juicy thing. Like if there's no exciting, juicy, fascinating, remarkable thing, then what's the point of doing the story? One of the things that I was curious about as you go into these interviews of great interviewers, what were your feelings, right? This is kind of like doing a story on uh, like a tennis, how to play tennis by stepping on the court with Serena Williams or Roger Federer. <laughs> what were your feelings as you approached an interview with somebody like Terry Gross? Um, I was terrified of Terry. I mean, it's a little bit, I, if I can stretch that analogy What's the oh gosh he was on my show but it was years and years ago it was a wonderful book the book about um, I want to say positively Fifth Street the guy who wrote the book about entering the World Series of Poker he was a real poker player but mostly a journalist and he did pretty well in the World Series of Poker but obviously he was writing about people who did better than him that's how I felt like I've been doing this my entire life so I do know something about interviewing. I'm not, I do have skill and talent. So yeah, you felt like you could step into the ring with them at least and, and go a few rounds, even if... Uh... Yeah, like he belonged there. Right. You know what I mean? Like, it, well, sure, maybe it was a stretch, but he belonged there. And for me, what it was about was so much of this activity, so much of this practice, so much of the knowledge is ad hoc. And certainly for me personally, because I have never worked as a journalist outside of my job hosting this show, which I created when I was 19. So I, and I've never had a, a journalism person guide me or like advice from an, I, everything has just been stuff I've made up myself in my own head for my own benefit. And that was one of the things I thought was interesting about your guest list was you had somebody like Mark Marin, whose background's in comedy. Um, you also had traditionally trained journalists like Susan Orlean. And these are the people we consider to be the great interviewers of our time. Not all of them went to J school. Yeah, totally. And I mean, you know, Mark, before he started his podcast, was a morning radio host for five years. So... Um, you know, he, he's conducted many interviews in his time, even before WTF started. But yeah, I mean, I think that being an interviewer in that context is as much about uh, a nose for the fascinating and a genuine, a genuine curiosity um, and, an, a, and a sort of understanding of what is entertaining as it is about the kind of traditional journalism skills of reporting and uh, structuring a story and that kind of thing. But for me, what I like, I picked all these different people because I thought, like, 
maybe I can kind of talk to them and, and reverse engineer a system of some kind. And it didn't exactly work, but it did make me feel like I wasn't like I wasn't completely wrongheaded. Right. So you mentioned that Ira Glass talked about going for the juicy bits in every interview that he does. Throughout this series of interviews, what was your favorite juicy bit that you gleaned from someone? Well, I mean, <laughs> that's easy. That Katie Couric went on a date with Larry King once. Like a romantic date. I had to confirm. Like she said, I went on a date with him once. I was like, wait, a romance date? I would have loved to be at that table hearing them go back and forth. I know. Can you can you imagine? I mean, how great is that? And they're both so, I mean, my experience with both of them is very limited. It's It's limited to one hour with each of them. But they were both so much exactly the thing that I thought they would be. <laughs> you know, sometimes you sit down with somebody and they're really different from what you expect. But both Katie Couric and Larry King were just really authentically Katie Couric and Larry King. And the idea of the two of them sitting down at a table over a bottle of wine and trying to decide whether to kiss each other uh, is just golden. So you've also been in this space for a long time, right? This is a new podcast, but you've been doing this essentially your entire adult life at Maximum Fun uh, with your podcast, The Bullseye, looking at cultural figures um, and doing interviews basically for uh, a really long time. Now we're in a period where the audio boom has taken over and it seems like everybody, including CJR, has a podcast. Is it gratifying at all to see this many people in a space you've occupied for so long? I have always believed that there was room for different kinds of audio programming than what was available on the radio. And I worked in public radio because public radio had the most things that I wanted and connected to. But, you know, a huge part of my life has been um, uh, being a critic of and performer of comedy. And, you know, the comedy on the radio was garbage. I mean, with the exception maybe of Howard Stern, who's very talented. I mean, I literally can't think of one other person. Oh, my friend Tom Sharpling, who was doing a show on WFMU. Like, I'm literally naming all of the comedy people who were doing something good on the radio 15 years ago when I was in college. And now you can find them on their own podcast doing great stuff. Exactly. Now there's, you know, uh, my, you know, my friends, the Doughboys do a show about um, do a show where they review fast food restaurants. And it is one of the most brilliant, hilarious things in the world. Um, and so in every part of my life, whether it's uh, I, you know, I also really like sports. Um, there's all these worlds that have opened up in audio that were not there 10 or 15 years ago. And so I can know that my drive to work or my walk to the walk to the metro and ride on the metro is going to be so much better. Like this has improved my dishes time so dramatically to say nothing of my professional life, which is also going well. Right. Well, we encourage everybody to improve their commutes and their dishes time by listening to The Turnaround with Jesse Thorne. There's a new episode out today, Friday, when this podcast will post with Errol Morris, and there's more to come in the weeks ahead. Jesse, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you so much for having me. That was our show. Thanks for kicking it with us. I want to thank my fearless co-hosts, Christy Chisholm and Meg Dalton. And I also want to thank Jesse Thorne for taking the time to speak with us about his podcast, The Turnaround, which, again, you can find at iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, wherever you get your podcasts, or check it and all of the other great content out at cjr.org. We'll see you next week. 